Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with co-founder of Order Editing, Hamish Mackay. Order Editing is a Shopify app that allows your Shopify customers to self-service changes to their orders after they have already placed them. The platform also allows marketers to use the order editing process as an upsell and cross-sell opportunity, and it also takes a massive amount of workload off of customer service having to do these changes manually. Order editing also creates order editing buffer times to account for order processing steps, changes in ERP, etc., etc. This guy is on fire. He hails from New Zealand, now lives in Melbourne. Uh, it was great to chat to him. It was great to hear his Kiwi accent. Enjoy. This is the E-Commerce Edge podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome Hamish Mackay from Order Editing. Welcome, Hamish. Cheers for having me on, Jason. Hey, it's it's so cool to hear it's so cool to hear your accent again. My God, I haven't really heard too much of the Kiwi accent <laughs> since I left New Zealand. Anyways, Kiwi boy living in Melbourne, living the dream life. Yeah, it's awesome. Absolutely love Victoria. It's definitely a bigger and better city than than Auckland was in New Zealand. It's a lot more commerce happening here, and there's a truckload of Kiwis living there. I I've got quite a few Kiwi friends that made the move across to Melbourne. In fact, one of my friends he's been there for. I think 10 or 12 years, you married an Aussie girl and they've got, I think they've got four kids now. Yeah, there's plenty of, you're not alone in the mass Kiwi exodus to Melbourne, are you? Yeah, it's funny. I, I travel back to New Zealand quite a lot. And when you meet with people that are older, they're, they're always like, oh, like when are you coming home? And I, you know, I always say, oh, like, going to come here, get my school level put up, do some, do some business and then come back and, and deliver that all to New Zealand. But we'll see. It's tough, man. Yeah. Like I said, I lived in New Zealand for almost 30 years and then we've made the move to Mexico. And I tell you, it's been a, it's been a journey. It's always hard to move halfway around the world. If I've done it, this is my second time doing it now, first to New Zealand, then back to Mexico. And I tell you, it's a, it's such a learning experience. I think it makes us better human beings living in multiple places, seeing the world through multiple lenses, having, developing empathy for other cultures, other languages, other foods. Just, I think living in other parts of the world, I think it's obviously a soft landing moving from New Zealand to, to Australia. But once you start moving further afield, even outside of ANZ, I think, I think it, I genuinely think travel makes us better people. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the big reasons why I started working in startups and was on this journey to try and become a founder was because I knew that there are people out there that can live in different countries for six months or a year and, and travel around and both work, but also experience different cultures and, and upskill in that aspect. No question about it. And I definitely, I think it, I think for me, I can speak for myself only, but from what I've seen from a lot of people I know are international travelers and sort of digital nomads and things like that, we tend to find a lot of common ground depending on, it doesn't really matter where we're from. We find a lot of common ground just being an international citizen as it were. But to your point, I think let's talk a little bit about your new startup, which is order editing. Uh, fancy name, really, you just cut right to the point with the, with the name of your product. <laughs> Boom. Good for SEO, man. But look, before we get into order editing, what it is, how it came to be, et cetera, before we get into those details, how does a guy from New Zealand who was originally in hospitality, which by the way, was my original career. I spent six or seven years in hospitality before I went into tech and e-com. Hospitality is near and dear to my heart. I'd like to think I use a lot of the skills that I developed in hospitality to work in tech and relate to people today. But how does a guy in New Zealand who worked in hospitality for years then decide, stuff this, I'm going into tech? Yeah, look, I was fortunate to have pretty deep connections in the YouTube and the creator economy space. And a friend of mine had just started up a full suite merchandising business that would manufacture, ship, do the customer service for these large scale YouTubers. That business skyrocketed, like post 2019, during COVID, e-com was booming. And I picked up a job there as the customer experience manager, and then effectively just fell in love with the space. Quickly realized how beautiful working with Shopify is, how beautiful it is shipping products to customers, and equally fell massively in love with customer experience, especially, which ultimately led into what this product is now that we're doing. It is a customer experience app, and we feel very fortunate to be taking that view away that customer, like customer service is a cost center, and actually delivering value through that channel is really meaningful. I've always felt and tried to help brands understand that I actually see customer service largely as a profit center done right. So sure, 
there's always going to be an element of service to that. There's always going to be an element of where's my order. There's always going to be an element of all this thing arrived damaged. There's always going to be an element of, of kind of pure customer service. But throughout that journey, the, the ability to build brand, affinity, trust, and the opportunity to upsell, to cross-sell, to resell, I think there's just so much opportunity that is overlooked by brands who do not build out a true, genuine, empathetic sales function inside of customer service. I think they're totally missing a trick because very rarely, and I've worked for some of the Health Post, I obviously helped run e-com for Health Post for quite a few years. And we tried to make sure that we created an environment where customer service because they're never working 100% of the time on emails, live chats, telephone calls, et cetera, there, there's always these little pockets of downtime. And we always tried to make sure that this was an outreach function, that it was a customer love function, that it was a brand affinity function, that there were things going on constantly within that department that made, instead of just being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff for customers, or just trying to remove them from just feeling like they were just a, a, a cog in the machine, we wanted to help our customer service and customer love team to really understand the critical function they play in the business in terms of revenue generation and revenue protection as, as well. And that's a, that's a hard thing to communicate in a meaningful way with somebody that's taking three phone calls a day. That's hard for them Absolutely. to wrap their head around, but it's so mission critical, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's interesting, like it's getting a lot of interest from partners and from these customer service platforms. They're pushing it in in every single e-commerce white label paper now that customer experience is slowly moving up the list on that agenda. And people are using those words to describe it. But equally, I reckon there is a disparity between what's being said online and what's actually occurring within the brands. I think the e-com managers, the ops managers don't view customer service in that way and actually tend to leave it slightly siloed from the business. At least that's what I hear and that's what I've experienced. And the customer experience team is equally left on their own, but they're dealing with the lifetime value of this person. They're dealing with the repeat users. They're dealing with your post-purchase experience. And customer experience can quickly turn into a cost center as well if you don't have effective standards of procedure put in place that perhaps the ops manager has helped with or the e-com manager has helped with. How are you managing refunds? How are you setting up your structure around that and not setting a, a precedent for bad processes that ultimately end up you losing all the revenue that your works so are hard to generate on the front end? I think that'll change. I think that'll change. But when we were working... At this merchandising company, we were dealing with creator fan bases. We were selling merch for, for Mr. Beast or Carl Jacobs, and we're dealing with their audience, the subscribers that, we've, that they've worked hard to build. And so there was a real emphasis on us that we had to be fantastic because if we, if we slipped up, we were getting blasted on Twitter. Like that was how it worked. We were going to get blasted on Twitter. Mr. Beast oh. was going to get blasted on Twitter. It was horrendous, but it pushed us to put a lot of love into it and put a lot of heart into it. Equally, it meant that the agents who were doing the 63 calls a day, who were sending out 200 updates over email every day, actually loved their job and had a lot of passion for it because they could see the direct effect, the direct impact of their love to customers, not just through the occasional response you might get or the occasional five-star rating, but actually over Twitter. People would post screenshots of our service emails being like, oh my God, like I love Gene, I love Rochelle, like they're phenomenal. And that was really meaningful for us and actually meant that we built, in my opinion, like a world-class customer service center while still outsourcing, while still dealing with high volume tickets, while still dealing with all the usual issues that can happen when you work with a 3PL. And that was really meaningful. I think it, to me, what that alludes to is a very high level of enablement, empowerment, ownership, all these words that are just by in a brand's ethos. But brought to life and infused with tooling that can actually enable that. Because it's all fine and good to say empower, empowerment. It's all good to say ownership. It's all good to say autonomy. It's all good to say these things and actually maybe even mean it. But unless you put the tooling in the hands of the people that are on the front lines actually talking to the subscribers or the customers or the fans or whoever it might be, unless you're actually giving them all the tools to actually be able to take action at the point of friction, then those are just platitudes, right? At the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people don't show the love. I know brands that onboard customer service agents and they don't spend an hour telling them the brand ethos, telling them the brand story, how we grew, who's the founder, sharing who the team is. Obviously, they may not be interfacing with them. They may be 
outsourced as well, but it's still equally important because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are driving repeat purchases when issues happen. And challenging people are limited on time, but we had 10 agents working from the Philippines and I got incredibly close to them. I used to do one-to-ones with them every week. We had specific onboarding sessions. They knew our brand story off by heart. They were advocates. They weren't just answering emails. Prior to that, we had a different formula and they were disengaged. They did five updates per hour over email. We started doing 40. And then equally, now that I'm no longer working with them, I still have this network in the Philippines. Brands that I communicate with are like, hey, like, who do you know that does great outsource customer service? And I say, oh, like my friend Gene in the Philippines, my friend Raul, like they've got capacity, let them work for you. And I get messages from the founder three weeks later saying, oh my God, they are phenomenal. And you don't usually hear that about outsource customer service. It's not common. And I think that's a real lack that another problem to solve, right? Maybe it's an education piece. Maybe it's a consultative piece. Who knows? And I do see more and more people come into the consulting space around customer experience, customer joy, customer love, customer service, customer success. All those things are falling into a new almost form of consulting, which is the post-purchase. In most cases, it's post-purchase. Not always, but it's almost always post-purchase customer experience. And that is a real niche specialization that is starting to get some love, much my B2B specialization for a long time in the consulting space just got no love. And it showed because of the very low adoption of B2B e-commerce. And that's the reality. But that's a very nice segue into order editing and talking, you know, speaking of enablement, speaking of empowerment, speaking of giving them the tools to be able to make the change for the customer without having to go through five layers of bureaucracy and approvals, being able to take action immediately in the moment without having to give 15 updates or 40 updates in an hour, like you were talking about. And that's, that seems like the genesis of the idea behind order editing. But before we jump into that specifically, we need to talk a little bit about why order editing is actually important as a concept, because the vast majority of e-commerce platforms simply do not, once an order has been closed, meaning it's been received and the order object has been locked, they do not natively allow you to then go in and modify those orders. Some of it is compliance, some of it is tax related, some of it is uh, having to deal with the impact on things like customer loyalty points or dollars, having to worry about uh, things like store credits. There's a lot of complexity wrapped around why most e-commerce platforms simply do not let you to edit an order once it has actually been placed by the customer and a payment method allocated to that order. And so I just wanted to set the stage before you launch into kind of the order editing specifically piece, why something like your solution has to even exist in the world, because these platforms don't make it easy. Yeah, there's so much nuance to it. And I think that's why it hasn't existed before. And the importance is that it's, there's a huge waste of resources going on right now. When we built this product, we, were, we had 3,000 order change requests every month, and we were one brand in the world and not the biggest one either. And when you think about how many stores are selling through Shopify or selling through e-com and your cost per ticket is like $3 US if you're running very efficiently, but it's as high as six, seven, eight dollars Gorgeous says it's 12. And when you think about how many of these emails are being sent every day, how many customers are meddling up their address or wanting to add another product to their order or forgot to add their phone number for tracking updates, we're arguably talking hundreds of thousands of dollars wasted every single day on customer service and no wonder it's no wonder it's considered a cost center because the reality is editing an order is a simple change in shopify admin but customers can't do it no one's empowered customers to do it and that that's the importance of it that is the importance of it and it doesn't make any sense customers hate sending emails i hate sending emails please understand that and this is our ethos is that great like grimmer experience is self-service when it can be and only with a human touch when it's necessary Loop we've seen from Loop, you don't need you don't need a human touch on returns, and now you don't need a human touch on auto editing. What like what is left, and what else do you not need that human element to come into play? Man, what a key point there! I lo- I love that. Automate everything that you can, and send the stuff to a human being that really belongs with the human touch, right? And where they really need to feel the love and the empathy, that's when you that's when yeah. you call on the humans, right? Let everything else be automated and as self-service as possible because most consumers, especially the tech-savvy ones, they want to manage everything themselves. They just want you to give them the bloody tools to do it. They don't 
They don't want to have to ring you. They don't want to have to live chat you. They don't want to have to email you. They don't want to have to do any of that stuff if they don't have to. And as long as they can be given high confidence in the process that now has been given over to them to own and manage, as long as they can be given high confidence that it's going to work as they're told it's going to work, then they will most often take that opportunity. And I think you make a very good point. Even the platforms that allow you to edit orders, that is not a customer-facing function. That is a back-office function for admin only. And especially considering the downstream impacts of an order once it hits ERP, once it hits the WMS, once it hits different parts of the workflow, perhaps if it's dropship, it now has to be exported to the dropshipper or the supplier. There's so many downstream effects of editing an order that I'm guessing what you guys largely base the opportunity for a customer to edit the order on is based on order status. Once, a, once an order hits a certain status, they can no longer edit it. That's cool. They're locked out from that. But up to a certain point, basically right up almost to the point where it's fulfilled, depending on what your process looks like, they should be able to make changes to their order. And that way, when the order is pulled in real time into the fulfillment system, et cetera, it's actually accurate. Instead of I've seen in businesses, it's just a joke. When an order gets edited close to the shipping time, you see somebody in customer service, and we used to have this before. I've seen it before physically right before my eyes. Where a change comes through, they'll literally print off the physical order. They'll scribble through it. They'll make the change in it. And then they'll rush down to the fulfillment center and they'll say, no, this is the order change for this order. When you see this get printed, this is what actually needs to ship instead. It's just the amount of time and energy wasted on order editing is just, it's actually mind-blowing, to be honest. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges that we had, writers and how it works depends on the scale of the brand. If you work with an ERP or if you work with most warehouse management softwares, you are not editing an order right up until it's marked as fulfilled because you would have missed the picking window. And that's where cutoff windows come into play. That's where putting orders on an upselling hold come into play. That's where the potential of canceling edit- editing orders and recreating them to, to have that cutoff window be larger work out. And that's what we've been building is... We've got this phenomenal product and we had great proof of concept. How do you work with these big, ugly systems that aren't ready for the innovation that we've created? Because we meet with people like yourself that have been in the industry for 20 years and they tell us that order editing has sucked for 20 years. And you jump on call with a brand or, or anyone who is technology savvy and they say, I can't believe it's 2023 and this is only just happening now, which is completely valid. <laughs> which is completely valid. And I think that speaks to the opportunities elsewhere in this ecosystem, like especially through Shopify. Shopify APIs are so, so extensive that you have the ability to actually build your career off that and, and build this lifestyle you like while equally working in arguably the greatest industry in the world of e-commerce. I couldn't agree more. And I like the fact that you've, you've spoken to the idea that you don't have to go and build, for example, you don't have to go and build an entire WMS or go and build an entire ERP or go and build an entire e-commerce platform to have a dramatic impact on our industry. There are entire companies and entire app ecosystems that are built on just the post-purchase order success page and optimizing that in every way you can possibly imagine or gamification technology, which is really just a a questionnaire about a customer's preferences before you present them with the products that are going to work with them best. Or these tiny, they're only, it's, there's these tiny little slivers of the customer experience. You don't have to go and build the next Nosto. You don't have to go and build the next search and merch platform to dramatically improve the customer experience. You can take simply that tiny sliver of the most painful parts. And you, you use the example of Loop. They're a prime example. There's lots of returns management platforms now but when Loop started out, there was only a couple and they really pioneered that space. And now largely the returns management or RMA pain has largely been dealt with. It's largely gone away, but there's still so many other places in that journey, those micro moments that are still massively painful. And I love that you're solving one of the most mission critical parts, which is before I ship out the wrong bloody thing, I want to fix that order. Yeah. And self-service returns is now part of every e-com brand's tech stack. Like it is on the priority list when you're setting up a store. It is on the priority list when you're scaling. And we're new here. We're new here. We launched in June and we're the first ones to solve this problem. And I can't, we look up to Loop. They had a similar story, right? Started the Chubbies, dog fooded their own product, got, got POC, came to market. That's exactly what we experienced. We stumbled on this problem and we worked goddamn hard to get ready for commercialization and go to market. And now it's this journey of raising awareness of something that hasn't existed before. How do you make people feel the pain of this problem? How do you make e-com managers aware of the resource that they're wasting on this? 
and equally the opportunities that lie within it to upsell people as well. And that's the journey that we're on. We definitely look up to the guys at Loop and think like it's a good, it's a good, it's a good strategy basis for our product moving forward, right? And it's a perfect land and expand model too, because as you expand the functionality of the platform, you get your foot in the door through the thin end of the wedge with this one tiny little problem. And as you expand the problems you solve, the more opportunity you have to sell additional modules, additional functionality, make more money, it becomes a SaaS model with multiple tiers, et cetera. It's just a, it's a well-trodden path. It's far easier to start at the, the bottom of the stack and evolve into enterprise than it is to come out with an enterprise product and try to go down market into the SMB space. Like it's almost impossible, right? Absolutely. So as you grow, it's easier for people to grow into your product and for you to grow into them than the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And we run with a, a brand testing. Like we don't make assumptions here. We, we meet with these brands and we ask for their problems and there's plenty out there. There is plenty out there. But obviously it's a matter of where do these things fit in the priority stack and what's going to be most meaningful. And right now that's very much so focused on how can we use this channel that we've created where a Shopify store has never been able to email a customer post-purchase and let them add and pay for a product to their existing order. And how do we actually maximize this opportunity that we've created? And there's a lot of fun ideas within that. Absolutely love it. And similar to the post-purchase follow-up, by using and leveraging the Shopify APIs, you can do things with the order object in your platform that then connects to Shopify's APIs to make those changes in real time, you can own all the messaging, you can own all the workflows, you can own all the order status updates, you can own that whole thing without ever having, without a customer service person ever having to actually go into Shopify admin to execute on any of this. And so that's, I guess that's the beauty of Shopify's ecosystem is the breadth of APIs mean that you can take so much more ownership of the CX of the customer journey, particularly in your case, pre-purchase, that this is, or immediately post-purchase, that this is, it's pretty game-changing for brands to be able to basically offload all of this directly into the customer self-service realm. And there's so much here. There is so much here. Like you will put, you put our app in your order status page, you put it in your order confirmation email, you embed it on your store's theme and customers notice they've made a mistake. They access it, they self-service it, they see complimentary products, maybe they add it to their order. They can change the address, they can change their size, they can cancel it, they can add products, they can change variants. They can remove products, they can switch products. And that's, that's, the, that's a key component, right? Equally though, if their order's shipped, we're showing them a tracking page. We're showing the most relevant update for what's there for them. Equally, we can also send out emails three hours before their order shipped out. And that's a great customer experience play as well. Customers get an ease of anxiety. They get notified, oh, like my order's shipping out soon. That's damn exciting. And hey, do you want to add another product to that order? Not going to pay any more on shipping. Or do you want to upgrade to that bundle? And there are, we talk about components, right? You can enable, disable these different components in our app and it's extensive. Like we want to build absolutely everything that a like to empower these customers and equally to drive value for these brands and, and reduce that cost into like whatever you want to call it. And it's fun. Like it's a lot of fun when you jump on call with people and you hear these very nuanced problems or these very nuanced tickets and Shopify APIs and, and like a phenomenal coder, my co-founder are able to, to build and solve these problems and actually build something that is extensive in that post-purchase landscape that, that covers the full breadth of, of what a customer could possibly be able to do. And do you think that the reason why a lot of e-com managers perhaps up till now haven't perhaps investigated this or thought of it in the same way as self-service returns management is because of the separation of KPIs and the siloed KPIs between an e-com manager and say a customer service manager, whereas a customer service manager is their KPI very differently usually. Now they shouldn't be, there should be cross-functional KPIs, but nine times out of 10, there aren't yet. And, and that's something our industry's gonna have to get better at. But usually customer service, they're KPI'd on number of calls uh, per agent per hour or, that are taken and resolved. Yeah number of first resolutions upon first contact, things like how many live chats, how many emails that they respond to per agent per hour. They're not, they're just their entire KPI structure is about volume. How many people can we deal with on an hourly basis across all the customer service channels we monitor and leverage? And so they are, they are all about bringing efficiency in and costs down. And for an e-commerce manager who's KPI'd on things like conversion rate and they're KPI'd on things like bounce rate and they're KPI'd on, on things that are more marketing in nature, or in fact, 
oftentimes their KPIs come from the marketing team. And oftentimes an e-com manager will sit underneath the marketing manager, or even if they're independent and they're responding or answering to a CEO, their KPIs look a hell of a lot more like a marketing C uh, KPI than they do a customer service KPI. So it feels like we're at loggerheads before we even get started about thinking about the tech stack that needs to be implemented in the platform for customer service efficiency and scalability. But it's funny that you mentioned that specifically in the context of Gorgeous, for example, they've done such mm. a good job of putting themselves on the radar of the e-com managers of the world and now the marketing managers of the world that it's not just customer service that knows ab about Gorgeous, it's everybody else in the business too. And it, so it feels like yeah. you're on a similar journey. We don't want to just be on the customer services radar. We wanna be on the e-com managers, the marketing managers, the bloody CEOs, we want to be on everybody's radar. Yeah, absolutely. And I love Gorgeous as a platform. Definitely my favorite pick for customer experience. And I think there's a few questions in there and there's a couple points to it. One I think is mindset. I think customer experience, customer service departments have lived in an age where you understand the efficiency of one employee and as tickets grow, you just continue to hire and they live in a hiring economy where that's just expected and no one seems to challenge that. And you'll just be signing off on, yep, like we've, we're growing, we need more agents, that's how it works. Never thinking about how can we actually reduce the demand. And part of that as well is because brands view customer service as a necessity. Everyone knows you're going to get tickets and it's just inevitable. Like, how are we supposed uh -huh. to stop that? But you actually can obviously stop these requests as we've seen from Loop, as we've seen from what we're doing. Another thing is just disengagement, I think. I talk to a number of CX managers or e-com managers who have no idea how many order change requests they get a month. They're not tagging them. And how, like how we stumbled on this problem is that we tagged all of our tickets. That was part of our standard procedure. We set that up operationally in our system. And equally, I used to do one-to-ones with all of our team every single week or every single week, second week, depending on what was going on. And I'd ask them, not just what tickets are you finding challenging? What can I help you with? But at one point I asked them, What's, what do you spend the most time answering? What is the majority of your day spent answering? And every single one of those 10 people said it was order change requests. It's changing sizes, it was changing addresses. And when you hear that, you extract the data, you look at that tagging, you see it's 30% of your tickets that you're doing, 3,000 of these. How could you not build this product? And that, that's where this came from. And for us, and this is coming back to that brand story, right? We built, we launched it, put it on these 19 Shopify Plus storefronts. And after 12 months, we'd saved $78,000. And it was like night and day. We turned off the light switch on order change requests by putting this into our emails and we didn't receive any. We literally lost 3,000 from month one. And that's, that's the value that we now need to communicate to brands and make them aware of. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep trucking, sorry, Jason, but to your point of e-com managers not having perspective on this or at least gradually building perspective, that was something that we knew. We came together in November or December and said, hey, like we've got proof of concept here, let's go to market. And me and our co-founder looked each other in the eyes and said, this isn't gonna land. Ecom managers are our buyers and they've got no clue what this means for the customer experience department. They've got no idea. And they're the ones that signed the paper. <laughs> and so we spent the entire summer developing this into something that can be positioned for an ecom manager. And that's what we have now. It's not just your cost center. It's not just a greater customer experience for customers. Hey, e-com managers, upsell people post-purchase, let them add and pay for complimentary products and add it to their order before it ships out. And that has been what's landing. I'm so glad we made that development because if we came out just with the self-service platform and you didn't do product additions, you didn't have this marketing piece, we would be getting nowhere. We would be getting absolutely nowhere, which is a shame, which is a shame. And I think you're, you were so smart to think of that because Gorgeous has gone down that path and mm. Loop has gone down that path. And in fact, the company, so there's three major buckets of issues that typically come into customer service. There's the Wismo request, which is usually in the top three requests. Yeah. Where is my order? The second one is, how do I manage a return? That's the second request. And then the mm. third is, can I change my order? So it's those three make up something like 95% of all the requests that come into a customer service center. Sure, there's the odd product question and, oh, do, will this work for my dog or whatever it might be? But 95% of those requests fall into one of those three buckets. And so if you can automate those three buckets, there goes 95% of your inquiries yeah. going away, right? Into a self-service model. And so for me, it feels like Gorgeous has done a great job of selling their product to e-com managers and marketers because especially they are also trying to say, we know what pages they've been on. We know which products are in their cart. We know all these things about them because we're integrated in your e-commerce platform and they start up a live chat with us, for example. We've got every tool at our fingertip to help them cross-sell, upsell, 
add to their basket. We can create carts for them, all the rest. And it's the same with loop returns. We've got an opportunity every single time there's a return to give them a better experience, to add things onto their order, to give them a store credit, to rebuy. Uh, and the same with all of the tracking platforms, uh, not for returns, but specifically for outbound shipments, all the proactive notifications to prevent the Wismo requests ever coming because we're going to tell you the moment it's left our warehouse. We're going to tell you the moment it's hit the first courier uh, depot. We're going to tell you every step along the way until it arrives at your doorstep so that we don't get these Wismo requests anymore. And then the final piece of the puzzle is you guys. And so it feels like you're going down a very proven track of saying, look, if we're customer service only, limited traction, because we're not going to, we're going to, not going to have a dialogue with a customer service manager. Usually we're going to be part of the yeah. tech enablement stack within e-commerce. So we have to have a dialogue going with e-com managers. Otherwise we're dead in the water. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where like we, we initially launched and you can see it in the name, right? Our name is order editing explains exactly what it does. Doesn't necessarily speak to that upselling piece. And interestingly enough, the upselling is our secret source. That is what people love this for. That is what over time we'll be benchmarking brands against to help them improve their performance on it. And that positioning change has genuinely changed everything for us. And it was hard. It was really hard. As you can probably tell, I really love customer experience and it's a passion of mine. And I see myself working in that space for a long time and to build a product that you love and that solve that very specific problem and then go to market with thinking that same messaging would land and it not. Switching to what is arguably a, a very competitive space of upselling, grow your AOV and a lot of false metrics getting thrown around was a real challenge personally to switch that up. But thank God we did. And maybe that will change over time as people become more aware of the problem and data starts to come out about just how much you can self-service and what that means from a dollar value perspective. But that's where we now jump on calls and we hear those comments. I can't believe it's 2023 and this didn't exist. This is such a no-brainer. I don't know why you wouldn't use it. This is a phenomenal product. Well done. I can't wait to use this. And sadly, and, and much to my dismay, we heard that a lot at the start from partners. We heard that a lot at the start from partners. We didn't hear it so much from brands until we talked about the upselling piece. Makes, makes complete sense though. Look, makes complete sense. Now for you guys, are you planning, you currently are a Shopify app only. Do you have visions mm -hmm. of trying to get this integrated as an app within the Magento app store, within big commerce app store? Is it your vision to try to get this into as many e-commerce platforms as possible? Or do you feel like, no, we're going to have a laser focus on Shopify for the time being, because there's plenty of, plenty of blue ocean in the Shopify space that we still need to swallow first. Yeah, look, we honestly, we plan on staying in Shopify. We love Shopify. Our, my co-founder spent five years developing apps in the space. And we think we solve a critical problem for their brands. And equally, that obviously extends to Magento and these other platforms, but they don't advocate for app developers much as Shopify do. And what we're trying to build is actually an awareness within Shopify about what we're doing and an advocacy in there because we've solved this critical problem and that needs to be shared. And so we plan on staying within there and actually building this quite loving relationship with the support advisors, with the merchant success managers. And it's been phenomenal. Like they have given us so much advice, so much love. I think I've jumped on call with about 120 of them at this stage to, to show them what we're doing, to ask for their feedback and, and not be scared that they're going to cannibalize our product, but rather say, hey, look, we're delivering huge value here. We solve a critical problem. One, what do you think? Who should we be talking to? And they all love it. And I think for that reason, it's probably important that we stay within their ecosystem. And it's, to be fair, given Shopify's track record, it's more likely that they would either try to buy you, invest in you, do something collaborative with you. If they saw yeah. that you were becoming a threat in some way, then they would probably say, look, it's actually far better for us to collaborate with them. And we saw their investment in Clavio. We saw their, we've seen their investment in selected ecosystem partners over the last few years. And it seems to be their new modus operandi instead of squashing people. They're like, how can we actually yeah. tail onto their growth by through either strategic investment or outright buying them and incorporating them into our core platform? One of the two, it's, it seems to be a lot less about outright destruction, scorched earth, and how can we collaborate? Yeah. And the app developer ecosystem is just phenomenal. Like the network within that, the love that developers share to one another, the success that people are seeing and the love that Shopify shows them, you'd hate to disincentivize it because it's delivering so much value to brands and it's a unique value prop. And unless like. You're absolutely right. Unless you infringe on their payment processing, they don't want to hurt you because you have done a great thing for them and you've boosted the value of their platform and you don't want that to start. Why would you turn the tap off? They've been very strategic in that, I think, and, and it's quite impressive. Totally agree. Threading the needle for sure. No question about that. And 
how do you guys make your money? So is it like on a per, is it a fixed monthly fee? Is it a number of order edits processed? How do you guys make your money? Yeah, we, we launched with founders pricing and we just left it open and free for all small brands. It would take 6% of the money that we made you. And that meant that we could get a whole bunch of accessibility and equally run those customer tests and customer advisory groups that were just pivotal to handling all the nuance that lives within auto editing. And then we charge $3.99 flat rate for enterprise brands that require that 3PL or ERP integration. And there's no commission on sales there. That will change over time, no doubt, because that is seriously undervaluing the product. But we think it's important that we get people on and get them aware of the problem. One of, one of the questions that we're now talking to customers about is how would you feel about variable pricing? That was something pre-launch that we were considering and decided against because we felt that brands would be anxious to have an unknown variable cost coming through. But it's a shame because our value ties so closely to it. When you know that a customer service ticket costs you five, six dollars and we charge you maybe 80 cents per an edited order, there's a clear cost benefit trade-off there. And that's something we're considering and getting feedback on now. Yeah, to me, it's the way a lot of Shopify apps are going there. It's a collaborative skin in the game model that says, as you scale, we scale. And so therefore, if we charge you a fixed fee per transaction that we enact from our side or transaction we modify in your case, then if you're small, then you're going to have relatively few to edit and therefore your payments will be relatively low. If you're massive and you're saving those 3000 order edits a month, like you were, well then cool. Mm -hmm. You won't mind paying us 80 cents times 3000 orders because you're saving that between five and $12 an order in terms of customer service costs. I think having a skin in the game model seems equally a lot of Shopify merchants feel like they're getting nickel and dime to death with a little bit of the, the rev share model, but it is a true skin in the game model. So I do understand why most platforms go that direction ultimately, because you've got to scale your infrastructure to keep up with their scale. And so only by tying your success to their success, does it really work as a model? So I understand this is going to be a hard one, but I, I think you'll get there. You've clearly done a lot of development in a very short window of time. What's next for you guys? What is, if we were to look down the track 12, 18 months, is there anything that you'd like to add to your platform that customers are either already asking for, or you already know, Hey, this is the one, two, three next things we want to solve as part of our native platform. And that's going to be rolled out in the next, next year or so. Yeah. Top two on the priority list, better upselling through volumetrics. We would love to know when a brand has space in that box, how big that space is, and then understand what product we could put through there, discount mm -hmm. significantly and equally have that free shipping piece actually very clearly happen. We see huge opportunity there and we think that's very compelling and equally new and exciting for brands to think, oh, like this customer could fit this hat or this t-shirt in there. Let's push it out to them. No brainer. The, the guys in the warehouse can just chuck that in. The other piece is something that I see doing phenomenal amounts for the awareness of this problem the, and the awareness of the impact that good customer experience can have. And that's benchmarking data. I want to benchmark how many orders you receive versus how many orders get edited. Is there a problem in the way your checkout works that customers are messing up their address? Or is there a problem the way that your sizing guide works that people continually order the wrong size? We can tell you that through this benchmarking data. We can benchmark your upsells through your order edits or your upsells through your total orders, how much your average order value growing and compare you to brands that are of a similar size or in a similar industry and let you know that, hey, you're probably not maximizing this opportunity. Let's tap into that. Let's onboard you like a second time. Let's try and maximize it and do some consulted, like free of charge, obviously, and help you get the most out of this new platform that you're using. Um, I think benchmarking data is very exciting for us. And I think it's something that has lacked across the ecosystem. The ability to compare your performance against your peers and actually get that understandable piece because the reality is that these guys, these guys, these women that are working in e-com, that are working at the top of these brands, they all talk to one another, right? They talk about how much money they're making or how many orders they're doing. But getting raw data on that and actually getting a comparability piece, how are you not going to be higher performing? And it, yeah, also you're now going to all of a sudden be able to start to see trends, which for me, a directional trend is the most important piece. The absolute numbers are somewhat irrelevant, but when you start looking at trends and percentages, now, all of a sudden, mm. that regardless of how many orders they're doing versus how many orders you're doing, now, all of a sudden, it becomes contextual, right? If the average fashion brand has been able to reduce their manual order edits by 85%, say, for example, all of a sudden, now, if, if I'm only able to reduce that by 20%, what the hell is going wrong? What is going wrong with my offer? What is going wrong with the process? What is going wrong here? 
And so I think that when we start operating on, on directionals and percentages and trends, now all of a sudden that becomes immediately applicable to my business, no, no matter how big or small I am. And I think it's democratizing yeah. access to that data from the biggest end of Shopify Plus all the way down to the $29 a month plan. That to me feels like a massive win for brands. Yeah, and it's so important in, in B2B SaaS. The continual frustration, frustration with SaaS companies is that you're not getting all of, out of, all of your product's value or they've still sold you a whole bunch of things that are irrelevant to you. And I would hate to be perceived in that way. That is just toxic. We want to be close to our customers. We want to learn from them. We want to build collaboratively. And what better way to do that than to give them clear data on, hey, are you maximizing this opportunity or not? And it's not deployed commonly in other areas, I find. It's, I saw, a, I can't remember what the app's called, sorry, but I a new app get launched that will A-B test your Shopify theme and your landing page on your storefront. And I thought there was direct comparability there to what in the YouTube space where people like Mr. Beast or other creators are optimizing these th thumbnails to hum ho and bringing data into that equation and really understanding what maximizes the click-through rate. Why would that not work on a store? I think that's genius. And the same applies. People get click-through rate on their YouTube videos on, on what's maximizing. Why not get that on your audio editing portal? Why not know if the positioning that you put in that upsell email is driving less value than other brands that are working with us. Why not know if the way you've placed it on the order status page is actually not directing customers towards it post-purchase when they do notice a mistake? And that's the stuff that brands need to understand and we're going to deliver that to them. Wow. Absolutely love it, mate. You are clearly absolutely on a roll, on fire, passionate, in love with this industry and doing everything you can to improve it from the ground up. Just love it. Just so proud, immensely proud of already what you're doing, what you've built, what you intend to build, keeping that laser focus on the merchant. But ultimately, the end customer experience is, is going to take you super, super far. I'm sure you can tell it already. I've already seen quite a few posts on LinkedIn about the platform, <laughs> what you're doing, and then all the positive responses to it. In some cases, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 comments. Like clearly, this is resonating with brands. And I think you every ounce of success that you get is hard fought and well-deserved. So congratulations, mate. And I just can't wait to see what you do next. Now, how would you prefer that people get a hold of you? All in the show notes, I'll link to the order to editing app in the Shopify app store. But Hamish McCall, I'll link to your profile on LinkedIn. How do you, how do you like people to get a hold of you and, and open a dialogue with you? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. Otherwise, please just email me, Hamish at orderedithing.com. Whatever way suits you best. Like I'm around. We are, we're very much founder-led brand and, and we're pushing hard and we love having these conversations. Absolutely love it. Now, we're at the point of the conversation where I get to flip the script. Turn the microphone over to you. Let you ask me one question. Any question you like it can be personal or professional. So Hamish McKay from Order Editing, what is your question for me today? What, is, what has been the biggest challenge for you, Jason, in working as a solo founder? I think it is, so my first e-com pure play business, I had a business partner and certainly sharing the highs, the lows, the frustrations, the challenges, the, the successes, all of that is I actually enjoy that aspect of being a co-founder. I really enjoyed that. People said, oh, you shouldn't go into business with your friends because it'll ruin your relationship. It's like going into business with your wife. It's, it's you're just destined for failure. We couldn't have been, we, we couldn't have been more opposite that assertion. We were, we were great friends. We continue to be great friends to this day. We, we enjoyed working together. He stayed in his lane of procurement. I stayed in my lane in terms of the tech and the marketing, the business. And we, we just got on an absolute house on fire. And I really enjoyed that environment. And as a solo consultant, solopreneur, you don't have that. Sure, I've got my wife, I've got my friends, I've got people like you in the industry that, that I have great conversations with, but it, it, it is, there's just an additional element of loneliness is probably the easiest way to put it. There's an element of isolation. There's an element of, okay, this entire venture is riding on my shoulders to make sure that I do everything right, then continue to do everything right. And there's no safety net for me. I'm it. And I am the safety net. And so uh, there's definitely that element. It, it's given me more freedom because obviously now I'm a digital nomad. I can do this mm -hmm. from anywhere in the world, which is, there's a tremendous upside. So I don't want to make this sound like a uh, poor me. I'm living the life that I engineered for myself. There's always trade-offs. There's always compromises that you intentionally take when you want to build a new life for yourself. And that was one of the comps uh, that I intentionally took that if I want to have my own, own independent consultancy, that's largely going to fall to me to build that. And it's all largely going to fit fall to my personal brand and my personal efforts, my personal network, my personal friend circle, it's all going to largely fall to that to, to make it happen and to make it sustainable. And that's totally turned out to be true. 
And so there's the upside and the downside of that, but it is definitely lonelier. I will not sugarcoat it. And if something starts to go t- tragically wrong in your business, there's only you one on. person that you can point the finger at, and that's yourself. And, th- and there's definitely an element of stress that goes along with that. And if I may ask a follow-up question, because this is something that I think really deeply about a lot, is has your ambition changed from the point of starting this business to where you are now? Uh, a little bit. I would say that I always wanted to build a business that I was working to live, not living to work. And so I have zero ambition about becoming a billionaire. I have mm. zero ambition about scaling this and having a hundred consultants um, working with me. I, I just have zero ambition for that. I wanted to build an intentional life where I could have deep work-life integration, not balance, because I don't believe there's any, really, as an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to achieve balance. The best you can achieve is work-life integration. During some days when I don't have consulting calls or consulting work, I can take an extra two hours in the middle of the day and my wife, can go, my wife and I can go sightseeing in Cancun. We can go take the dog for a walk at the Malecon. We can, there's just, there's a tremendous level of freedom associated with the life that we've built for ourselves. Mm. And that was always the intention. That was yeah. always the place we wanted to get to. I think that my ambition grew just through moving to Mexico. And Mm -hmm. by that, I always accepted the fact that I, as long as I lived in New Zealand, I would always have additional challenges, winning work in North America, Europe, et cetera. I just accepted that my sand pit was mostly going to be ANZ and APAC, and that was going to be where it was going to stop. And I wouldn't be able to go to the events and all that sort of stuff. But now I see so much more opportunity because I just went to B2B online. I just spoke at the conference. We just got back from Florida. The opportunities in the States in particular for what I do are so insane that it's incalculable. There could be a hundred of me and we could all eat and we could all stay busy. So the reality is that if anything, that has increased my ambition. I am what, so now my ambition has changed to how can I further streamline and systematize what I do in terms of the delivery piece? so that I can scale me, so that I can minimize the physical, actual work I have to do to get an outcome for my clients. How can I systematize that and automate that better than what I do now so that I can do more, so that I can engage with more clients, more B2B businesses, more D2C businesses that need to be B2B and vice versa. How can I have more conversations like the conversations I'm having with you? How can I create such a system and, uh, and scalability around my content creation that takes me less time, not more? Because I want to actually increase my content output. But mm. at this point, I'm probably at about the max, even with automation and software that I can do on my own without taking on one or two more people, at least in a fractional capacity to help me. And so I, that's over the next 12 to 24 months, that's going to be my key focus is how can I scale without killing myself? That's the goal. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's something that I think about a lot is like my ambition for this company now and equally the reason why I ever wanted to go out and and found a business and why I started working in startups in the first place and how to manage the temptation and allure when things do start growing to just keep working harder and to keep growing things and and chasing the never-ending carrot in front of your face. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, It's always really nice to hear someone that's been doing it for a lot longer than I have speak to their experience. And I think the engineering of your life and that in between is exactly what I am trying to build here. And the freedom play, I think, is often, it's not counted for enough. It's not counted for the psychological impact of knowing that, oh, like I'm working because I want to, not because I need to, or I'm able to make these choices and any goal I set upon myself is is self-imposed. And and what's the point of that? I think you should always challenge like why you're doing these activities and and why you're stressed out at 6 p.m. every night on the weekday. It's interesting. It is. I think building an intentional life is something that everybody Mm. should embrace. And look, if they want to be an employee for the rest of their life, because to them that equals more freedom because they don't have to do much engineering. They just do do their work and then they go home at the end of the day. Or if they telecommute, then they just do it from home or whatever. Like some people, that is the perfect life for them. And I wish them all the best. As long as that was intentional and as long as that's how they engineered it, then I wish them... I would never try to impose my sort of lifestyle and the compromises we've made. And and one of the other reasons that I can do what I do is because I don't have kids. My Mm. wife and I both made a conscious decision. We don't want children. We have a dog and he's he's basically our child. And even having a dog imposes some limitations on what we can do, where we can go, which sites we can go see, 
you know, we have to put him in a doggy hotel if we've got to go away and, you know, for a week at a time or whatever, or go back to New Zealand, he's got to be in a doggy hotel. So there's always some limitations and some restrictions and there's always compromises you have to make to lock in the life that you want. But I think it's about how can you minimize the compromises and maximize the fun, the joy, the fulfillment, the value that you get out of your life. I think it's about the minimum number of compromises on that side and more, how can I work harder to engineer my life better to where I have to make less compromises. Yeah, and that's where that intention comes from, right? It's understanding what truly matters to you, what makes you happy, and then personally driving your life towards that and not getting distracted by all the noise. 100%, because man, I tell you, that is easy, especially when, you know, I was probably in some respects more ambitious when I was younger, but it was a purely probably financial ambition when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And now it's more, okay, I'm almost 50 now. I've probably got fewer maybe a fewer years ahead of me than I do behind me. And it's okay. Now quality of life matters a lot to me. I want to be able to exercise. I want to be able to stay fit. I want to be able to, I want to be able to max the quality of my life for as long as I possibly can. And man, commuting two hours a day to the office and uh, breathing HEPA filtered office air 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day. If you're working in agency land, it's just to me, it just seems like the worst possible way to live. Having said that, and I've said this before on the pod, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today if I hadn't have put in those ridiculous hours early in my career to where those trials and tribulations that I went to and and at the coalface experiences, those are what's paying dividends today that I can now, I can monetize those experiences. But if you've never had those experiences, you don't have anything to monetize. So it's a chicken and egg scenario. And I think they just call that paying your dues. And I paid my dues for a long time and sacrificed my lifestyle for a long time to Mm. get to this place. And I'm not saying everybody needs to sacrifice as long as I did. But there's always going to be a price to pay somewhere along the way for what you're trying to achieve. Nobody gets away free. Absolutely. We're so young here at AudioEditing.com. And one of the things that I consistently think about is that the older you get, the more likely you are to succeed in business. And that's one frightening because I wish that we came up with this beautiful idea 15 years later when we had that long extended grind and that period of learning, but equally gives you a lot of confidence that like if you've had such a great idea at this age, like what's going to happen to you when you're 30 or what's going to happen to you when you're 35 and you've got equally like the founder experience before that. So we're very grateful being here, my co-founder. We're just beyond excited. Mate, I'm super proud of you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to speak to you again soon. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.